Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, uh, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War podcast needs. Jim, before we get going, uh, tomorrow I understand you're about to join an exclusive club of human beings who've... Um, been hurled out or hurled themselves out of aeroplanes is that right <laughs> yeah well this this goes this goes back quite a long time so my daughter daisy you've got yep. your daisy i've my got my daisy. daughter daisy yeah yep. my, my my daughter daisy is a little bit ahead of your daisy and she turned 16 last week <laughs> and yes. um just coming out to her seventh birthday i said well what would you you know what would you like for your birthday and she said i want to do a parachute jump <laughs> i said you're just not old enough i'm afraid sorry sweetheart <laughs> She said, "Well, when can I do it?" And I said, "Well, when you're 16." She said, "Okay, well, when when I'm 16, can we do a parachute jump?" And I said, uh, "Okay," and and she said, "Pinky promise," and you know that kind of cute thing. We have to get your little yeah, yeah. finger, little finger out and twine it and all the rest of it. Anyway, every year ever since, she's going only kind of six more years until <laughs> eight oh years until we do the parachute jump. Anyway, the moment has arrived. <laughs> amazing <laughs> and she's never forgotten it and she still really really wants to do it so we're doing it tomorrow that's super cool tomorrow morning at eight o'clock from old sarah but it won't be eight o'clock will it It'll be lots of faffing around but it'll it'll depend of, on know, the, safety yeah, drills and yeah, all yeah, that and yeah. the wind's too yeah or there's a cloud over salisbury cathedral and we can't do it now but anyway it'll be faffing around eventually we'll finally do it and it'll last 27 seconds <laughs> <laughs> whether i live or die <laughs> <laughs> that's how long it'll be well no you'll be you'll be freeful for about 50 seconds and then you'll get a couple of minutes coming down on the thing yeah yeah it's lots of fun but, but anyway so, so yeah we're doing it tomorrow i'm just basically not thinking about it until i'm sort of standing in the doorway but yeah i mean you know i i, I did feel a bit inspired actually because after my kind of weekend at, at d-day ohio yeah um, and seeing the uh and seeing the airborne guys jump out which was fantastic uh, and i did sort of think oh yeah i'm sure al mentioned you know that maybe next year we could do this well i think the problem is yeah, we're too it's, old. it's gone, has it? No, we're too old. I think. Okay, well, you're not too old if you're in America because the guy I, I I met the boyfriend of a girl that Stu Bertie knew had bumped into in Bastogne or something um, this year earlier this year, and her boyfriend was doing it, and he was he he looked older than us. Yeah, but maybe it's different rules in America. Well, I know that I know that Pathfinder the regs they're under that it, no one no one over fifty is allowed to do it in Europe anymore. That's what that's what uh, that's from the horse's mouth. Okay. Because, well, I just buy out. I did see. I did see a D-Day veteran do it. In they seem to have a dispensation. Okay, because God knows, God knows, <laughs> yeah. I've looked into this for next summer. Don't yeah. worry. All right, all right, all right. Well, we'll just have to. We'll just have to put up with the thirty-core reenactment of four hundred vehicles. So D-Day weekend. 
Yeah, that was all good. Dissected the whole thing with, with John yesterday. So mm. I think I think there's, there's only so many times I can I can I can go back over it. But it was it was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. And actually, Stu sent me another photo this morning, which is you know it's right out of sort of Robert Kappa's kind of Magic Thirteen or whatever it yeah, was yeah, he yeah. took. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was it was the most amazing thing. And I, but I was sort of thinking, I suppose most people you know in America can't go to. Normandy. It's just you yep. know that opportunity to get it's such it's such a bigger thing to get yep. there than it yep. is for us going whizzing across the channel. Good point. Uh, and this is a good thing. What struck me? Three things that struck me. First of all, was the incredible range of age. Yeah, there were there were real youngsters there. There were kids, you know, yep. loving it, dressed up as kind of hundred first airborne, age seven. Um, but there were also reenactors who were kind of in their twenties. So they, they, you know, there weren't as many kind of, you know. Fat fifty-year-olds squeezing the belt around their gut, kind of types, as, as I good. thought there would be. Uh, so you know, stand corrected on that one. Second thing was the incredible respect for what they're doing. Yeah, you, you know all that kind of thing. You know, there was no, there was nothing gung ho about it at all. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They, they they do it because they want to get close to their grandfathers, or they want to feel, they want to get a, a kind of sort of visceral kind of tangible kind of connection to that generation and the other thing is is they were such a broad range of backgrounds i mean you know there was a sort of slight worry that they might all be all so from from my sort of lily livered centrist point of view there was a slight concern that they might all be kind of sort of maga types but 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 not a bit of it not a bit of it Judging by Donald Trump himself, he—I mean, he wouldn't know when D-Day was or what it was. So <laughs> no, you know. that's certainly true. But I had this fantastic. Well, I, I was on the on the second second day of you know of the the main event. I was on the one five five Long Tom crew. Yeah, and, and you have to be in position at sort of two, and nothing kicks off till three, and they fire the first shot. That's the first shot of the battle, and so we're all sort of hanging around, waiting for kind of you know, they're all in position. Everyone's kind of you know, get your mobile phones away and all this kind of stuff. And you know, if you want to drink water, you got to drink it from a proper water bottle, not from plastic thing. And all this oh kind of yes, yeah, yeah, it was all that. But we sat, sat down, all, all, the five of us, six of us, and started having a really, really fantastic one of those sort of brilliant, spontaneous conversations about life the world the universe and everything from politics to hopes to aspirations to state of the world to what it means to do what they do and it was just so free-flowing and brilliant and then it was kind of click the fingers boom you know press the electric switch on the first one boom, off it went and on we went and i was i was just completely struck by what a what a lovely bunch of blokes they were mm. but, but b how how different their backgrounds were and and their perspectives and everything, and, and and I tell you what, it was a real lesson. You know, you, you bracket people at your peril. It's 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 a really bad thing to do. You know what? That's actually the thing. I you know, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of thoughts this week because I mean, and we'll get to it because I've I've just finished the audiobook of Savage Storm, and there is a lot to talk about with that, Jim, um, <laughs> and not just your the very poignant ending where you you shed a tear at the memorial or tone and all that. Do you know what that that wasn't me getting all over kind of mawkish. No. I, I was profoundly affected by that because I've been doing all this stuff on, on, you know, I've been reading up all about that and reading about the battle and just how sort of totally ghastly it was. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, I had Farley Mowat kind of ringing in my ears and, yeah. and Roy Dernford and, and Seafried Bear. And suddenly to see this memorial with this, with this Canadian medic standing over this prostrate Canadian, you know, how could you not 
you know, have the have the heartstrings. But we'll get we'll get to that. So what else? What else did we want to talk about? Because we haven't spoken in a while. It's good to catch up. No, 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 no. Well, it's just it's just it's just it's very nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um actually I've been reading a really uh, and this actually ties in with um Warfest Dry is I've been reading a really really good in depth history of the Westland Whirlwind. Oh, have you? A literally sortie by sortie history of of the Western Whirlwind. Okay. Absolutely incredible. So from from the from the fighter specification where they know they need a, they they know that eight machine guns isn't going to be enough. They know this in like 1935 or whenever it is. Yeah. They're writing the fighter specs. There's the famous fighter spec that leads to the Spitfire and the Hurricane, but they know that eight machine guns ain't going to do it. They just know. And also then it becomes clear quite quickly that people are going to be able to put steel plate in aircraft that's light enough to protect the pilot and vital systems or whatever. And they know this. So they know they've got to get cannon into fighter planes. And the, the whirlwind is the product of this thing yep. so that you know you can shoot bombers down. You know you can. And yep. Supermarine offer a thing, I think, called the Type 313, which is a twin-engine cannon thing. And they also submit, the, I think it's the Type 312, which is basically a Spitfire with cannon in it, and they've found a way of modifying fitting it in the wing, which then, obviously, turns up later. But the government, the, the air ministry go... Was it Type type what? Type... 312 and the 313, I think, is the one that's the that's the, the twin-engine submarine. Um, you'll see there's drawings of it. Yeah, look at that. It's like it's like a Spitfire with two engines. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it's... two seven. Yeah, yeah. There's the Type 313. Um, uh, the, the, it's really, really interesting because... So basically, but the government, the air ministry goes, submarine can't even produce the Spitfire thing in time. Right. They're stuck on it. They're too small. They can't cope. We're going to have to give this to someone else. And uh, it's Teddy Petter at um, Westland who who's designed the Lysander, right? And already yeah. the, the Lysander is full of innovations and it and it's basically kind of too complicated and all this sort of thing. And so Westland have, and it's got these leading edge slats and all this stuff and, and so it's super cutting edge. And like, Petter's done some interesting things. He's talked to pilots ab- about what they want from an army cooperation aircraft. And that's gone into spec as much as the spec. But so Supermarine don't get the contract for the Canon aircraft because basically they haven't managed to deliver Spitfire quickly enough. Huh. So Westland are given the Canon fighter job and they're given a different power plant because, again, you know, Rolls-Royce are going, well, we'd rather not, you know, there's only so many Merlins to go round at this point. So can we put the Vulture or whatever the uh, power plant is in the world? And it's just really, really interesting because after all, Mitchell's planning this super bomber and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. The four hundred, the three hundred mile an hour and, bomber. And really, what it comes down to is that Supermarine. Everyone knows in the end, Supermarine can only actually manage one plane at a time. Uh, and if they're going to make the flying boats and the Spitfire, yeah, it, yeah. It, there's just no point trying to get them to do anything else. And they ask if the, with the with the cannon firing Spitfire, the original cannon firing Spitfire prototype, prototype. They say, well, can we? Or in which case, can we only make one prototype Spitfire, and then we'll make you the cannon plane as well? And the air ministry go, no, we need two prototypes of the Spitfire. That's what you're you're not capable of anything more than that. And so. In comes Teddy Petter at Westland. And the, the whirlwind is full of innovations. Like, it's really... It's a seriously sexy-looking plane. Oh, God, it's so cool. But, you know, but, and, I, and I absolutely adhere to that old adage, you know, looks good is good. Yeah, but above 15,000 feet, um, it, the, the, the climb just drops off completely. And, and you know, uh, above that kind what, of What height, engines is it using? I think it's vultures, but I mean... Okay, well, they obviously need Merlins. So. Well, yeah, but... 
there is a consultation about putting merlins on it but it's peregrines which are mutations of whichever whichever the vultures right. it, anyway and the saber engine planes are all delayed so it looks for the whirlwind basically has sort of 10 minutes where it's the fastest fighter plane in the world it's quicker than a spitfire and it's got four cannon in the nose you haven't even got to synchronize them you just have to pop up behind a bomber and you'll yeah, shoot yeah, yeah just there, shoot right? But then, because it's full of innovation, it gets delayed, it gets delayed, it gets delayed. And Westland are small. And when the first whirlwinds are delivered, there's a decision to actually, no, we'll go photo reconnaissance with it. Gets cancelled, they order eight, then they reinstate the order. And then the squadron sent to Scotland. And Dowding won't, basically, Westland go, look, can we have the squadron in Yeovil? And then we can fix the planes right here and now, yep. rather than it all be done at arm's reach. And Dowding basically goes... I think the whirlwind in the end, basically, they're, they're worried about getting Lysanders as well as well as well as well as whirlwinds. And basically, Dowding goes, Westlander are, are enough of a headache with this aircraft. Let's give them, and they give them a Dragon Rapide or something to fly parts backwards and forwards. But basically, he's already gone lukewarm on the whirlwind. And what's so interesting, Dowding has, yeah, Dowding has, because he's seen its early stage development when he's doing, you know, when he's at the Air Ministry. Right. Before he's had a fighter command. And it's just, you just really get this sense that, that had someone backed it, they'd have fixed it. But no one does quite. So they don't quite. There's I no Wilfred Freeman. No. And I think they make 116 or something and then they cancel the order and then they go into. So basically, they go into. They go, the idea is they're going to be a, a bomber plane. So ground attack. attack. Well, no, a bomber attack plane that you send right. the cannon up to deal with the bombers. But because its performance over altitude isn't very good, and because the Battle of Britain gets higher and higher and higher and higher, you know, they're doing, the 109's doing fighter sweeps at 30,000 feet. They get higher and higher and higher and higher as the escort to counterattack yeah, yeah. the fighter command response to bomber force and all this, to, to bombers. That basically, that everything moves out of the whirlwind ceiling and above 15,000 feet, basically, you're doing 140 knots and it's taking forever and the engines are completely underperforming. But it's what just so interesting. Because it looks so good. Oh, it, it looks so cool. And then they switch to like a hurry bomber roll and they get they literally take parts of a hurry bomber, put bombs on it, it goes ground attack. It, it, and the idea is it's a ground attack plane. It's, a, you know, for brassing up airfields and all that sort of stuff on roof yeah. bombs. And it does pretty well. But basically, because... You know, the Spitfire airframe has been treated as an open-ended engineering project and they're looking forward with the Spitfire and their Hawker have, Hawker have been given the time to fix the Typhoon. The whirlwind sort of gets... You just can't have everything, can you? Yeah, exactly. You can't have everything. You can't have everything. Difficult decisions have to be made. But this book is literally sorty by sorty. You know, Jenkins... How amazing. Got, Jenkins, you know, uh, Ridgemont and... And Jones oh, fly to this airfield. One of them, they can't find the airfield, so they attack a radar station instead. It's literally like that. It's, ab I mean, I, I didn't get, I almost <laughs> like, I was overwhelmed by the detail in it. Um, really, because basically, and the reason I bring this up is I'm, I've been asked to make a whirlwind for the shit off stuff at Warfest, which is the modeling stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I got sent the airfield. You don't do yeah. aircraft. I know. And this is a 19, sort of 1968. Westland Whirlwind Airfix kit. It's not, oh, wow. I mean, it looks like it if you squint. It's not a right, brilliant right. kit. But I've made it. But I thought I, I thought I need oh, to. Oh, well done. I thought I need to read into this a bit more. And, and the, yeah, yeah. The history is really interesting. what it is you're modeling. Yeah, and they, yeah, exactly. And they get, they get basically, they get, they get phased out and. What a shame. What a shame. With, replaced with typhoons. And they have a big party at Westland when the plane is finally taken offline. 
uh, where they everyone gets pissed and they and then they and then you know it's quite interesting. It's an interesting story because it looks like a complete hot rod. You know, yeah, doesn't it? It looks amazing. Yeah. It looks absolutely amazing. Well, I've been I've been reading Roland White's new book, which is called Mosquito. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's basically about the the raid on um, the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen at the end of the war. But yeah, it's it's terrific. There's lots of it's it. It's absolutely terrific. I really like his his writing style. He he knows he, you know he's writing to entertain, but the research is absolutely. God, I don't know how he does it because he's also a publisher at Penguin. So I don't know how he has the time to do it all. But anyway, yeah. it's great, isn't it? Yeah, you're reading it, are you? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Really yeah. love it. But what else? Well, having just finished The Savage Storm. Yeah, you've been in my head, haven't you? Yes, I've, I have. <laughs> you've um, had that weird experience. Of- yeah, the, the very, a very interesting experience. I mean, you know what? I think that campaign, if uh, Man for Man were a daddy long legs, right? Mm. Yeah. Man for Man, the German army is better than the Allied armies, is a daddy long legs. Then you've pulled the wings off that daddy long legs. You see what I mean? For want of an yeah, no, uh, yeah. Well, because if, and you spell this out in the last couple of chapters, if you look at the, the actual, what everyone's ration strength is, what actually everyone's bringing to the field and how, you know, the German divisions are shrinking, but they haven't shrunk yet. That um, actually what people Yeah, that's the key point because everyone, everyone often says that, but, but the, the 1943 reorganisation, it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a new divisions coming in. I don't know, 29 pounds of grenadier are still the same size and all that sort of stuff right but but that anyway it's teeth these are teeth and tail calculations the reason the germans are reducing the the, the divisional size is because they're reducing the tail because they're running out of people they're not reorganizing because they've found a better and more efficient way of fighting it's because they're running out of people running out of men so you you're, you're weeding the tail out and feeding people into the teeth who you wouldn't have had in the teeth originally right that's why they're doing it but the fighting component remains the same size. The division may be smaller, but the, you know the re- yeah. What they're doing is they're reducing a they're reducing it by so a, a 1944 infantry division instead of having three regiments has two. Yeah, but they're increasing the they're slightly increasing the size of regiments. So so going from kind of sixteen thousand to twelve thousand or half thousand to eleven half thousand, whatever it is. Yeah. Those 4,000 men are not – you're right. You're, you're losing a little bit of your, your fighting edge, but you're not losing as much as – as, as No, your bayonet strength is essentially the same. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, no one is ever at bayonet strength. There's always – there's someone There's someone with a cold. There's someone who – No, but in up. Normandy, in northwest Europe, they're replacing casualties much quicker. Yeah. The point is is, is that you're – you know, it's that photograph of that of, of, of the Coldstream Guards or whether the Grenadier Guards or whoever it is coming off the first Battle of Camino. 201st, isn't it? 201st Guards Brigade, yeah, yeah. And, and they, look, they look absolutely gone, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the thing is – so this is where I'm going with this. Air power is essentially nixed. I mean, w- when we've been talking about the bombing campaign, uh, strategic bombing campaign the last few weeks, and it's, and it's been really great seeing people's response to that and feedback to it and, and how they're sort of taking it. You know, one of the big things is there isn't the weather. There is not the weather <laughs> no. to deliver a strategic bombing campaign. It, it doesn't exist, right? Obviously, I enjoyed writing about the weather a lot. Yeah, yeah. I've, well, <laughs> I mean, the winter does come across badly. That's all I'm going to say. If I were the winter's agent, I'd be saying, could you stop slagging me off quite so much? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the thing is, you know, you can see why um, cruise missiles appeal to bombing people so much, right? Yeah. Because they are less affected by the weather. You put, you put the GPS into them. No, no, no one has to look for anything. No one gets lost. You know, job done. European weather doesn't deliver 
the circumstances needed to deliver an effective strategic bombing campaign, which is why you end up bombing blind, whoever you are, the Americans, the British, the Germans, whoever, you end up bombing blind because of the weather, right? For tactical air forces in the winter of 1943, there's never the weather. So, you know, you get those occasional offensives where there is a clear day and the Germans are just, they're just flicked off the battlefield, aren't they? And Kesselring goes, cool, Christ, that was, that wasn't much fun, was it? But then they forget, the Germans immediately forget the moment the weather's, you know, you've got that extraordinary business of uh, the possibility of a counterattack around Ortona. Uh, <laughs> that. Uh, that is that is literally my because that's actually by Lemelson, who's who's you know actually he's pretty good. I mean, he seems to be a realist as well. Uh, he seems to be a realist, and then he's sending this missive back to to you know to Kesselring, sort of going, "Well, uh, you know, I'm getting ready for a counterattack," and you just think, "On what planet are you existing yeah, this morning?" Yeah. yeah, but this is where this is going, right? So. So the rifle strengths, bayonet strengths are essentially the same, the rifle companies, right? Yeah, certainly in 1943, yeah. Allied advantages are in artillery. But the German, German, I mean, the other thing that's really striking for this is how active the German artillery is. Everyone's always, you know, all the Allied infantry accounts are about being shelled. They're all about, and in particular about being mortared, right? So yes, there is an Allied, uh, the, the tilt is in favour, especially heavy artillery. The Allies have got, they've got their long toms and have got their, um, you know, their heavy regiments and stuff. But beyond that, this is infantry on infantry. German infantry are in excellent defensible territory. There's, there are actually considerably more divisions of by German divisions in Italy, per, you know, full stop, than there are Allied. So how do you get through Colelungo and how do you get to the top of uh, – how do you get through the gully? How do you do all that if man for man the opposition are better than you? How are you winning? You can't. So, so what's actually the so the case is it's the other way round, is what I would suggest. A hundred percent. Offensive operations in this landscape, essentially, it's it's because, and I've I haven't changed my mind since you know in the last dozen years. If you have a a, a line running across your front, you know, in, in front of you, which is basically a not bad infantry division. Yeah. The deviation for an allied division is is. Some are a bit better than others. Some are a little bit worse than others. But yeah. but but basically, it's sort of wobbling up and down that mean yeah. line. Yeah. Whereas the German one is much more extreme. Yeah, yeah. And it depends on the state of the German. You know, wh- one of the problems that the Germans have is that they they get into their head that the first Faustenjäger division is the kind of sort of the absolute mutts nuts in terms of and they'll stiffen any situation. They'll stiffen any situation. They're the most you know they're the best trained. They're the best troops. All the rest of it. Again, they've been massively whittled down as well. Incidentally. Yeah. But mainly because of that attitude that we could use them to plug holes, so they get they get wasted plugging holes. This is my point. So, so actually, Magnus Paul, who's a German um, historian, has done a lot of work on the Faustenjäger, and basically says they've been, you know, they're, they're a PR exercise by the Nazis, and not a lot more. And 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 this putting them on a pedestal is simply they don't deserve it. You know, they were they were no better or worse than anybody else. They just had more machine guns, and they had a kind of like a vibe. But but most of this whole kind of sort of lifting them up is done by Nazi propaganda yeah. rather I than... I mean, a second LMG per infantry section will make a difference. It will make a difference. But what they do is they they pull them into penny packets, which is you know arguably exactly the mistake that France makes in 1940. Yeah. Uh, and, and pulling cohesive, coordinated units apart and spreading them into penny packets and plugging gaps and firewalling, that is a fundamental sign of weakness and is also a fundamental sign of mismanagement. But I think Kesselring is pretty bad because I also think... That fighting, you know, fighting south of Rome 
is all about getting influence in in Italy. He want he wants to trump Rommel. He's a he's a massive over optimist. So he's constantly seeing the best in every situation. Where actually sometimes a bit of healthy realism, which is what Rommel is suggesting in Italy, is actually fair enough. But but what they've done is they've lost Foggia by the end of September. Yeah. Foggia is the only bit of Italy, southern Italy, south of Rome, that is worth having. So what if you've given it up without a fight, there is no point. There is literally no point in fighting south of Rome. Well, you know what? Let's take a break and I'll come back with why I think it doesn't occur to them. Go on. Uh, we'll see you in a second. Welcome back to Way of Ways to Make You Talk. So why did the Germans not see what Foggia for what it is, which is a base of operations for strategic bombing? Because they don't think in those terms. They don't do strategic bombing. So because it's not part of their consideration, they're not thinking that we must deny the enemy of that because that's what they'll need it for. See, I, I, I don't think it is that. I, I agree with you about strategic bombing. I don't think it is that. I think it is that actually the Allies were right the, the information they have when they assume that Hitler is going to retrieve, retreat to the Pisa Remini line is incredibly spurious. There is no hardcore evidence to suggest that's the case. And the whole of the, of the armistice negotiations and the invasion of Italy are based around the presumption that that is what Hitler is going to do. It's wishful thinking at the very best. That's the kindest thing you can say about it. It's a, it's a terrible miscalculation. But... Actually, that is what Hitler is planning to do. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's it's really extraordinary. This, and it also, I mean, I think the other thing, the other thing around all of this, that swells around all this, is the limitations of, you know, one of the stories we tell ourselves about the Second World War is, you know, we knew what Rommel was going to have for breakfast, and we knew, you know, who the last NCO was in every last formation, and all this, and their weaponry, and all that sort of thing. But uh, no, we didn't. Ultra certainly helped and could let you know roughly on paper what the German dispositions were, but he didn't tell you what they were going to do next much. Absolutely. And I, th- and I think, and, and partly that's because of the whim of Hitler and part, uh, you know, and, and changing circumstances and all the rest of it. Well, and the whole Nazi ed- edifice being sclerotic and contradictory and collapsing on itself the entire time and riven with competition and contradiction. Yeah. And actually, I think there are lots of, lots of examples in the war where having that knowledge actually hinders them more than it helps them. Yeah. Because it makes them think, oh, well, this is definitely going to happen when actually... It isn't, so it sends them down a kind of a wrong track. But be that as it may, that is Hitler's plan. Yeah. So the idea is to kind of sort of resist any, is to dismantle the whole of, of the Italian armed forces and push the Allies back into the sea. But there's no real kind of plan about what they're going to do if they do do that. It's just to kind of buy time, really. It's a buying time exercise. And what they realise is, is that if the Allies are going to land, they're going to land on the West Coast, not the East Coast. Yeah. And they haven't got enough troops to do everything. Yeah, yeah. They have got enough troops, but they're all in the north because that's the plan. Yeah. So they're up in the north protecting the Brenner Pass and the lines of communication, and that's where Rommel is because that's where Rommel has suggested to Hitler that they res- retreat to. And Hitler's saying, yeah, okay, you're, you know, you're my man. And, and, and that's what I'm thinking. But, well, Rommel's recommending that because his experience of the last year and a half has been, actually, you know what, we're better off with short supply lines. He's finally learned. He's finally the penny has finally dropped for him. Yeah, finally, it's finally dropped. I should have made that point. But and I think that they're in such a, a pickle, and they're so kind of focused on Operation Access, which is this dismantling of the of the Italian armed forces and making sure that Plesti's okay. That that they've actually taken their eye off the ball, and they've just thought it's too much. We've got to do the Balkans. We've got to do Greece. We've got to do this. You know, let's just concentrate on the north. And then Hitler has one of his vault facets, 
when Kessering actually puts up, the German troops in the south actually put up quite a good fist of things at Salerno. Yeah. And he just changed his mind. Yeah. And, and but, but, but that point is too late. So his, his mind, his, his change of strategy is ridiculous and pointless. <laughs> you know, the, they could have made the Gothic line, you know, truly impregnable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying you don't you don't you don't have a fighting retreat, but fighting retreats are of you know as Slim showed at, at Infar, fighting retreats can be very very effective. Yes. What you don't want to do is get stuck over a winter behind some line south of Rome. It's completely pointless. Feeling sort of bad into worse. But Slim's fighting retreats are all about having things figured out in the first place. That that's what you're doing. You're doing. It that's my point. That's my point. Exactly that. Exactly that. But did you did you get the sense of sort of you know, what I wanted to do with the book was was have this sort of, you know, it starts off in the sunshine, there's kind of, you know, optimistic from the Allied point of view, it's summer, there's lots of kind of talk about people being hot and sweaty, and it just builds to this sort of... Well, you know what? Worse it, yeah. and worse sort of crescendo of violence and gassiness and winteriness. Absolutely. And also, you know, explains it sort of in a fundamental way why the campaigning season was when it was. That you fight in the summer because... Because that's the only time it's really possible. Yeah, yeah completely. The, the minute the days are so short, you can't, you know, you can't get. I mean, it also it raises so many questions about what then happens in Normandy as well. Uh, it really, really does. Because again, the, the Allies obviously think, well, they're the assessment is, well, they're going to do what they're doing in in Italy, where they they fall back in stages, and we'll reach a point where we, you know, that th that's going to happen again is what they're thinking, right? For Normandy. Yeah. They're not expecting to be held on the beaches. Whereas the Germans are looking what happens at Salerno and thinks, fuck it, if only we'd if only we'd held them there, if only we'd reinforced that in an insufficient mass, rather yeah. than held back waiting for an inland battle, then we'd have kicked them up back into the sea. And obviously there's the then what question as well. Yeah. Well, that's certainly what Rommel's thinking, that's for well, sure. Exactly. So the, the lesson the Germans learn from how Salerno goes is the the, the opposite of the Allied lesson. The Allied le the Allies assume, well, this means they're going to do these staggered, the staggered treat. And of course, the Germans then do fighting penny packets in Normandy as well, in the end. Yes, of course. But mainly because that's what they find themselves having to do because of the, the, the meat grinder that develops. But I think it's really interesting. So the, the, the German conclusion is hold them to the beaches because if we'd done that at Salerno, that would have worked. Don't sit back. Put all your cards where the landing's going to be because that's the best way to win. And the Allies assume Germans are going to pull back. <laughs> You know, and they don't because the, the le lessons that either side have learned are in sort of direct reflection of each other. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, isn't it? And I mean, I think the other point you really make is that, you know, time's ticking on. The Overlord is scheduled. Overlord has to happen. And Overlord is, sched is scheduled for May. Tyranny of Overlord. Well, but that's the other thing. It's scheduled for May. And I think, you know, we all know it happens in June, but it's... But this time, at this moment, it's May. It's a whole month earlier. And, you know... If your shipping cycles are nine-month cycles or 15-month cycles or whatever, that month is a huge difference. It's not a matter of no. four weeks, you know, like in regular life where you go, oh, well, we'll see you, we'll see you, in a, we'll see you next month for, for lunch. Can't do it yeah, this month. Yeah, so it's yeah, not yeah. like that. I think that's really, really interesting. But it's also it's all about shipping, isn't it? I mean, that's that is really what it's all about. They they they, they want to do everything. They want to be supplying the Chinese and the Soviet Union, and they want to yeah. be doing operations in the Pacific. They want to be doing operations in Southeast Asia. They absolutely want to kind of ring fence Normandy, uh, an operation overlord. There's all sorts of very very good reasons for being in Italy. Yeah, but something's got to give, and that something is Italy. And so the poor bastards on the ground are having to do all the hard yards. 
and indeed the generals, frankly, who've had a you know you know history hasn't been that kind to them, and I think completely no. unfairly because I, I, I can't I can't really fault how they fight it. They you know they they're, they're doing the best they can. It's quite remarkable what they managed to pull off, considering the kind of the, the hindrances that they're facing, which goes takes you back to your man for man thing. Yeah, but I mean you know Clark Montgomery. Alexander, you, you can't really, or even the corps commanders, you can't really fault them in Italy in, in 1943. They're not doing anything wrong. I mean, Clark, Clark's performance at Salerno is, you know, how can you criticise him for that? I mean, he, he's absolutely magnificent. Yeah. You know, considering he's never done it before. He's, he's never commanded an army battle. He's been given an unbelievably dodgy hand. Yeah. And he pulls it off. He pulls you it know, off. Like, okay, yes, with, with the support of air power and naval power, get it. But you still got to have the boots on the ground. You've got to keep all that together. He keeps it all together. He's got a. He's also got a multinational force. It's not like it's, he's like full of. You know, he's just commanding Americans. He's commanding Brits. You know, frankly, he barely knows. Yeah. But how how can you criticise that? It's absolutely extraordinary. Well, it's it's very odd. But also, the thing he's not doing is writing optimistic reports to his bosses, saying no. And that and that line he sends to Eisenhower at the end of it, when it's all over, and you can you can see him kind of breathing the sigh of relief in the message. And he says, "Thank you for the for you know for for giving me this opportunity. We you know we, we there's much we can learn from this." Yeah. How 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 can you possibly argue with that? But you know, in contrast to Kesselring. I think he's rubbish. I really think he's rubbish. The more I find it, and I've done so much work on Kesselring, I really think he's not very good. <laughs> you know, he doesn't understand that level of it. You know, he's he's a good supreme commander of, of a theatre because yeah. he's a good player and he's a you know he's a he's he's good at diplomacy and he can see the big picture stuff and he's good on the kind of overall strategy well reasonably good on the strategy and good on the operational level but tactically he's all over the place and, and you know you wouldn't expect him to be anything else because he's you know he's a junior artillery officer in the first world war and then then you know he's a senior bod in the luftwaffe he's not a ground commander and yet that's the role he's been given you know it's 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 absolutely extraordinary yeah um anyway but the, but the other thing i think that's really really powerful in the book and it you know what it'd be very interesting to read because I don't think in your Normandy book you quite did the same thing about what it's like. What it's like being an Italian when this thing turns up. Yeah, well I, well, I kind of, you know, I, I get really baity when people call me a military historian. I don't like being called a military no, you're historian. War historian, yeah. War historian. And, I, and, I, and, you know, war historian in conflict is, you know, there are military engagements and there are the consequences of those military engagements. And the consequences of those military engagements are a wider conflict which Im- impacts on on 40 million italians but that story of that family uh, you know hiding in the rocks they hide in the all oh winter oh, um, and one, one of them's a woman from glasgow which is well, she's which is, she's italian but she's brought yeah, up in yeah, but she's but she's from glasgow it's the most extraordinary thing and that commando officer who's escaping goes through with them doesn't he stays with them for a bit and then moves on yeah uh, th- that story is absolutely boggling and again you i know one of the things you, you you're really interested in the book and i think and it's very powerful how you talk about it that that the liberators turn up and in order to liberate have to destroy everything i mean it's or it's you know it's that whichever american general in order to save the village it was necessary to destroy it you know that about the vietnam war mm. it's that thing but why are the germans you know, they're not doing it to liberate anybody. Why? Why? Why are they massacring Italian civilians? Yeah, the Colilungo thing is really so. So, so for those who don't know, I think forty-seven people. Are there. So, so, so basically, there's this, there's this town, and it's the most beautiful setting for this town. It's like something out of a fairy tale. You go up into the mountains. It's really high. I mean, where where Colilungo is, you're higher than than you are on the top of Samukro. 
Yeah. So, so, so it doesn't feel like it because you're in this sort of this gully, this glade, this sort of beach glade. But you are actually, in terms of sort of feet above sea level, meters above sea level, you're actually higher than Monte Smucro, you know, which is the San Pietro battle and everything. Valley Rotundo, so suddenly the front goes through it and everyone sort of thinks, yikes, you know, we, ne- we need to go. And the Germans turn up and go, you know, this is the front's coming through here, you might want to scarper. And, and sometimes they forcibly kick people out and sometimes the, the Italians just go. So there's there's Valley Rotunda um, and there's this other little village, this little kind of yeah. ta- hamlet. And honestly, even today, these places are remote. I mean, you know, it's it's a faff to get to from Casino. You've got to sort of drive up and wiggle up all these roads and all the rest of it. It's absolutely in the middle of bloody nowhere. And they all left in October and went up to this this place called Kulilunga, which is this sort of big. It's coming down from these really high peaks. A sort of is it Monte Maya? I think it is, and and it's this beautiful, very narrow sort of gorge almost. But but the banks on one and there's a sort of the gushing mountain stream coming down, you know, gurgling and babbling and stuff, just like you know one of those mountain streams in the Lake District or something. And on one side is a whole load of beech trees and big rocks. That comes out. And anyway, in this this glade at the bottom, by the edge of the the mountain stream and the beech trees, yep. is where they all go to. And there's kind of you know there's forty seven of them by the end of end of December. And of course, there's snow on the ground. It's freezing, and they're trying to make these sort of makeshift little huts from from sort of putting branches over over the overhang of a rock and all this kind of stuff. And the Germans have, know they're there, and it's, and it's absolutely fine. And they've been perfectly friendly, and they sort of share rations and you know whatever, and it's all absolutely fine. And suddenly there's a changeover. Yeah. And and the Americans are they think the Americans the Germans think the Americans are coming. Actually, it's the Moroccans that are coming. Yes. And they obviously think that these Italians are going to tell the Moroccans about them, about their positions. Yeah. Because they're new. They don't. They have, they haven't got a relationship with these Italians, so they just think. They're getting in the way, and they might be a risk to us. And we've had a horrible time, and they're a pain in the ass. There's one way to sort this out, so just shoot them all. That that I think is that is the only explanation, and it's horrible. It's horrible, and it stands in you know it stands in contrast with the business of you know that the, the Allies are there to liberate, but they have to destroy. Whereas the Germans are just there to destroy. Is the sort of the lo- the logic of it? If you if you want if you want to call it logic, it's very affecting, isn't it? It is. It is really really affecting. And, and also, I, I think particularly because, because I'm not going to spoil it now, but there is a there is a scene with the Scottish girl that is so it's so awful and 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 violent and yeah. so shocking yeah. that it it just sits with you. When I went up there, they some years ago they put up a memorial there and they've done it really really nicely. And what they've done is down in the little glade. Where they all were, yep. stamped into the rocks is is a little sort of brass plaque with the name of the people that were killed at that spot, and so you can work out exactly where everyone was. And it's really it's just awful because it's it's the most beautiful spot. It's it's just it's lovely, but it's just oh my god, it's just it's it's so upsetting. And I found myself getting very emotionally involved with all of these guys because you know, but I, I think there was such a difference doing it using contemporary sources as much. Yeah, no. Well, well, that's the that's the other thing that's really really striking, is that Jim is that that that, um, that in the moment that in the moment element. The other thing I think you know you've got those 
German characters waxing philosophical about the nature of war and what's going to happen and how everything's going to be everything's going Phil to be destroyed. Phil Mouse talking about you know one day this 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 valley. I'm looking at this beautiful valley, but any minute now it's going to be destroyed. But nature will come back. And it, I, I just remember reading that, just thinking, oh my god, yeah, it's absolutely devastating, isn't it? Yeah, it's it just, is. You can't yeah. believe it, and it's and of course it's all in the moment. And they're not writing after the war where you know Hitler told me to do it, and I was a Bengal. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Like you know, I've always told my best friends were Jews. There's none of that. You know, it's all in the moment, and they're oh god, it's just incredible. Yeah, but it's impossible not to like Hans Golder and 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 Jörg Zellner. I mean, you know, they're incredibly empathetic, likable people. Hans Golder, particularly, I think he's such a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sort of, sort of larger than life, and you know, and weeping into the into his bedclothes one night after the Volturno crossing, you know, because one of his men's been killed, and he's just it all gets too much to him. And then the next minute, he's all sort of gung ho again. But he's a he, he's a fantastic sort of doesn't seem German, does it? I mean, he's Viennese actually, but yeah, but, yeah. but you know, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Austrian, yeah. But, but 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 he doesn't he doesn't. And this is the thing with these these diaries and these memoirs, which are sort of you know, and these journals which are written contemporaneously. The characters just bur- the, the characters as they were then, in that moment, bursts off every page. Whether it be Jack Ward, the artillery RSM, or whether it be Hans Golder, the the uh, Nebelwerfer battery yeah. commander, they can't help themselves. You, you get such a clear image of what they were like, or Laurie Franklin Vale, or you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, or, or whatever. Whereas when you're talking to someone 60 years after, it's profoundly moving, as it was when I talked to Lucky Luckadoo, the, the 100th Bomb Group um, B-17 pilot a couple of days ago. There's a huge value in talking to him. But it comes with that retrospective take, you know, whereas the diaries, you're there. You're, you're, you're in that moment. You're, you're living it with them. And, and you're seeing the personalities that they were in 1943. And and that is just profoundly moving. It just it just is in a way that it isn't talking to someone sixty years later. Yeah, I I, I mean the thing is is obviously veteran accounts of, of incredible value and interesting and and all that. But there is the complete immediacy. I mean it, Jack Ward's diary. I mean it's the most extraordinary thing. Reading what he's saying about what's going on. And and that, you know, this is a PBI war and he's always saying it. But he says things like, you know, we reached this this horrible town, it's all destroyed, and you know, we put up our, our headquarters now in a in a sort of semi ruined sort of block of flats or whatever it is. There were, we found lots of Italian dead that the Germans had killed on their way out. And you kind of think well, it probably wasn't. <laughs> you know, they probably yeah. it was probably killed by by British artillery, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I don't really know whether he, he knows that or whether he's thinking that or whether he's convinced himself that to make himself feel better or or, or what. But it doesn't really matter because no, it doesn't. It doesn't. The, matter. That's the exciting. That's the interesting thing for the reader. You know, sometimes you 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 can you can explain too much. You know, you want the reader when you're reading it, just like I I was when I was reading his diary, to make up your own mind and and, and be thinking about it and be, and, and be realising. You know, when history's black and white, it's very boring. When there's lots of grey matter and there's, there's there's sort of shades and there's there's moral ambiguity and and there's and there's all sorts of conundrums that, that that these these fundamentally decent people find themselves in, that that's that's much more interesting, I think. Well, but reaction that there's been some people on, uh, you know, where we talked about was it allied British policy to kill Germans, right? Which is what they say they're doing. 
They say it. They say we are, and they sometimes use euphemisms, and sometimes they are not saying that. You talk about that on social media. There will be someone who pops up and calls you morally decrepit, and that, and why are you looking into this? What's wrong with you, and all that. And I think it's much more interesting, much more <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Like that guy, the, the other the other thing was also that guy yesterday. He was saying he, someone cropped up and said. Um, Warsaw and Rotterdam were legitimate um, military, targets, um, yeah. military targets. It was Churchill who, on the 11th of May, 1940, um, was, 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 you know, I just thought, oh, my God. Well, he's a, that guy, he's a Nazi. He has 98K in his handle, which apparently is a wearaboo thing to say he likes the, you know, the 98K rifle, that he thinks it's a great oh, rifle. Oh, okay. okay. he's a fan okay. of them. Well, whatever. But, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But sorry, you were going to say something. Well, no, is that we were in the same. We're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I just think it's isn't it more interesting that at the core of the British government or the war, let's call it the war warfare state in Britain, was mm. entirely ruthless in its persecution yeah. of its war of its war aims, which is what we've just been talking about. If you talk about how Italy has to be destroyed to save Italy from fascism, and you know the, the, the comparison you make between you know the the, the regulations that AMGOT draw up, draw up around. <laughs> Naples and so on, and compare them to the German what, ones. What they're, basic, doing, they? they're basically the same. Except you're less likely to be shot, but they're basically the same. Curfews, men, men being pressed for labour. You know, it's exactly it's the same stuff. And and the thing is, well, if that's the case, it's, then it's not really that difficult to say. Well, bomber commander saying to themselves, "We're trying to kill as many Germans as, as we as we possibly can." There's the the idea that there's cricket to be played. It, Yep. in this and, and and of course obviously they started it which is which would be the reflexive you know way of but but that doesn't they started it doesn't allow accelerate surely you then have to discuss questions of accelerationism on every level whoever yeah. starts it yeah you know and that's tammy davis's middle point isn't it that she yeah. says by the end yeah. of the war the allies are completely accelerated they've gone from in 1939 at cabinet level saying we can't bomb German private property. Can't bomb Germany because we'll damage private property. We'll leaflet the Germans, but we won't bomb them because we'll mm. damage private property. They've gone by to, to 1945. Just, just, let's drop a, a, a nuke. And yet, the heavies are commissioned well before the war, so you're going to use them because if yep. you commission them, you know, which comes back to Supermarine not being able to deliver a, yeah, yeah. The, the bomber that we were talking about earlier because they're tied up with a Spitfire. You know, he, he, this idea that it's much, it, isn't it more interesting well, it, it is considerably more interesting, but is it? I mean, but 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 I, you know, doing this book, I just thought, how can I have not known about Ortona and yep. Orsonia and, and and the details of Monte Samucro and, and Camino? How can, how can I have not known about these gargantuan battles in which, you know, just untold human suffering is 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 being played out? How can I not? How can this be a footnote to accounts of Casino? I mean. It's an absolute disgrace. And and the nature of what we choose to kind of focus on in the Second World War, I think, is just is, is as interesting as, as uh, you know, so, so it's a whole different strand. But, but, but you know, it, you kind of, I kind of sort of felt, well, I'm really glad that all those people who suffered at Ortona, that at least now there's an account. Of, I mean, you know, Mark Zwelka has done a, a, a very good book on, on Ortona, but it's, you know, it's published in Canada and it's for Canadians and, 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 you know, it is absolutely brilliant, but it's not mass market. You know, isn't it great that now, hopefully a few more people will read about it and learn about it and maybe go and visit it and, and, and remember, what, you know, just 
how awful it was, whether you're German. You know, that, that, I mean, Siegfried Bear wandering around in the town of, of Vortona as a Fauschenjäger trying to just trying to get through it and one after one you know the guys oh my god it's just incredible and and Farley Mowat jumping in that that shed and landing on a dead German who burps because he's dead because he's full of gas I mean it's and and then there's a guy there dying with the oh god it's just absolutely gut-wrenching but also the, the other thing it makes you think or it was making me think you can I can see also because of this why people focus on a single day like D-Day, right? Why, if you're trying to, if you're holding the Second World War in your imagination, the D-Day landings are a success and we win the war, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that, because after all, apart from what people think happened at Omaha, it's not, not quite as, you know, it's not a Stalingrad, it's not a bloodbath in that, in that respect, right? So you can hold that in your imagination. You can, it's explicitly a war of liberation the campaign that follows it is quite is relatively short. You know, the the, the overall campaign that follows is relatively short. Seventy six further days, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you can cope with that. Imagine if you'd had, if the Germans had fought, you know, and obviously they couldn't do this because of how they'd committed themselves to everything else. But imagine two years of Italian style fighting through France, the whole of France destroyed. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, France is spared, isn't it? It's the it's the peculiar thing. Um, in in a, such a strange way. The other thing I came away from it thinking France was spared the worst of it. Well, I I, I would just so love to take you to Ortona. Oh, you you would go. find it so interesting. It's it's just it's it's an absolute gem of a battle to study. Yeah, because of the curious landscape, and because of Ortona itself. When you get to Ortona, the, the shrapnel marks everywhere. You can you can marry up photos that were taken on the day. You're in the same spot, and it's one of those battles where I've got such a clear picture of of what happened, why it happened, how it happened. I I really get it. And one of the things I've been really, I was really trying to do with that this book is is try and take people closer to to these places, you know, and with lots of description of the landscape and lots of kind of try and really generate some atmosphere in the, in the battle sequences when you, when you get to them. Yeah. But Ortona is just, Oh man, it's just, and, and San Pietro, it's just, it's just, it's devastating, but Ortona, I don't, there's something about that battle. And I know it's Canadians, not Brits and, you know, and, and, but, and it's a mixture of Germans, you know, from the remnants of the 65th and the 90th and the, and the Faustenjäger, but it's just, there's something about it that's absolutely it just really got to me. Yeah. Well, again, I just sort of think, and it pulls you back. That alternate battle again pulls you back to a one for one, one man for man question. Falshimiega mm. winkled out by you know Canadians. Canadians, who you actually were learning very quickly, Le- learning on the job. No one, no one has trained in street fighting. It's, that's the other thing. Is really clear. No one's trained in mountain fighting. No one's trained in street fighting, and they're picking up as quick as oh, winter fighting because it's winter mounting. Mountain fighting. I mean, uh, anyway, Winter Mountain, Mountain Street. I mean, they're just—they're not trained in it, and they and they pull it off. Oh my God! Yeah, Sea Force, and also particularly after you know, it's the Sea Force who also come a cropper on the on the first part of the battle, which is when they're trying to get across the River Morrow, just a couple of miles to the south. Yeah, uh, and, and when they when they're trying to take San Leonardo, they're the ones that get get pushed back. But they're also one of the two battalions that is in Ortona and finally wins Ortona, and they they work it out by doing this this up and down through the streets. So the streets are all joined together. It's all terrace houses. And what they do is that you, you go and work up the steps, get to the attic, work your way down again. Yeah. 
by bashing through the wall, go up again. So you're going up and down, up and down. You're not going on a on a on a level. Yeah. You're going you're you're clearing bottom to top, top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. One after the other. It beggars belief, the whole thing. The whole thing begs relief. Yeah, yeah, it really, really does. Anyway, well, thank you for reading it. Savage Storm in all good bookshops soon. Uh, audio book <laughs> also available. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it's perfectly. It's available to pre-order. Yes, There's actually, we got we've done a special edition for for Waterstones as well. So it's got yeah. it's got nicer end papers. I know. I've read some... the adverts. <laughs> You've read the adverts. Oh, have you? Oh, well done. And uh, yeah, and it's and it's got all this sort of little bit of extra material. One last thing, though, um, Friday the 8th of September, which is within spitting distance, we have Ways Fest starts. The gates open at 10, 11. We do a welcome to the party thing in the Osprey HQ tent at 11.30. Steve Prince, Glyn Prusser talking about uh, smashing the wolf packs at the Atlantic in 43. The briefing tent is at 11.30. Is, it's group captain Tim Will Bond, the briefing tent, talking about the doubting system. And in the Arsenal, Mongoose White behind the Japanese lines in Burma 45 with Simon Leaney. That's just the first three things happening we've got we've got some amazing historians coming you know from victoria taylor john mcmanus all the way from from usa we've got um you know steve prince clem mully got all sorts of really um jonathan Fennell, amazing people we've also got james may Dermot o'leary ben wilborn shane taylor from band of brothers yeah special surprise mystery guests we've got quiz shows we've got google box We've got serious stuff, lighter-hearted stuff, and we've got absolutely tons of hardware, more hardware. There's also more peripheral stuff. So SOE training camp, all sorts, just tons and tons and tons. More stalls, more more shopping to be done. And we've just booked a mobile cinema, I think. Oh, yeah, the mobile cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the selling, showing, showing 24-seater mobile cinema showing Pafé films from the war. WNTL. WNTL. And if you still haven't made your, made up your mind, or if you're of spontaneous nature like me, and you haven't bought tickets yet, you can buy them on the door. You can show up and buy. Yep. Um, so you yep, don't yep, have to yep. go to the website, wevewaysfest.co.uk. You can show up, Black Pit Brewery, 8th, 10th, 9th, 10th September. Um, I'd like to extend my sympathies to anyone who's bought tickets to see the Crown Jewels that weekend. I will not be on. <laughs> <laughs> we don't um, like doing hard sales on this podcast, but occasionally we're going to do a hard sell because we want to see you there. I tell you what, though, um, when, I, when I was in, in D-Day, Ohio, um, the bits where I was with the with my media pass, I was on the um, on the kind of battle side. I had to be in the right kit, and actually, I have a pair of HTB overalls, coveralls, um, which I bought ages ago, and which I use, you know, from doing a garden or whatever. But normally, I'm wearing them over my jeans. Yeah. And what I've discovered is that when you just wear them, kind of, you know, au natural, they're unbelievably comfortable. They're like a sort of Churchillian romper suit. Really. Yeah, so I might actually get them out when it comes to We Have Waste Fest. Okay, right. I, I still need to – I'll tell you about this when we finish. I need to pick up a Denison, I think. I need to bite the bullet and buy, buy a proper replica. Yeah, all right, but you need to wash it in a very high temperature at least three yeah, times. Yeah, okay. Right, okay, right, okay, 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 <laughs> cover it, cover it, right. cover it in petrol, leave it in the garden, all that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, yeah. everyone, for listening. <laughs> we will see you again very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.